G'day uh, once again. Uh, when my nephew, who lives in California, recently graduated from preschool, each of the kids in his class made a profile poster to celebrate. Uh, each poster was individually decorated with a self-portrait and handprints and so on. And in one corner of the poster was the question, when I grow up, I'm going to be a dot, 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 fill in the blanks. Garbage man was the response of my nephew. Now, when I saw the picture of my nephew standing next to that poster, it occurred to me that one of the wonderful things about being five years old is that your life is so open ahead of you. There are so many possibilities that could fill in that blank. I asked my own six-year-old the same question recently, and she explained that she was going to be a different thing on different days. So on Monday, I'm going to be a vet. On Tuesdays, a hairdresser. Wednesdays, a mum. Thursdays, a doctor. She had it all planned out. But as life goes on and reality cuts in, over time it becomes less clear that the life over time, it becomes rather clear that the life that lies ahead of us is far less open than we may have once dreamed. The idea that who I am, what I'll be, and what I'll do with my life are all just decisions I can make unilaterally, well, that's just not how the world works. There's the reality of things like school marks and getting qualifications, the reality of finding a job, the reality of our growing responsibility to others that comes with age. Then there's all the bumps in the road that come our way. Sickness and death of loved ones, a redundancy, dysfunctional relationships, people close to you making poor decisions. So much of our life is constrained by things that are out of our control. And so for many of us, so much of our life is just spent coping, just keeping things going from day to day. Now, it's true that circumstances are kinder to some than others, and some of us have landed on our feet more than others. But still, for most of us, I think, uh, there is this longing within us for there to be something more than this life has turned out to be. Well, today we're looking at the encounter between a Samaritan woman and Jesus, recorded for us by the Apostle John in his biography of Jesus, in chapter 4 of that biography. Here's a woman whose life has turned out very differently from what she might have dreamed and who had developed her own ways of coping with that. And Jesus comes to her and he shows her that it doesn't have to be this way, that there's a better way to be than just coping. Her longings and her own solutions to those longings are actually a symptom of a greater need, a need that Jesus himself alone can satisfy. And what the story of this encounter does for each of us is to confront us about our own longings and the coping strategies that we have developed for getting through life. And ultimately it challenges us to, to see that our deepest longings can only be satisfied in Jesus. So let's spend a bit of time now reflecting on this episode. If you've got a Bible handy, you'll probably find it helpful to have it open there at John chapter 4. Now the thing we're meant to be struck by at the outset of this encounter is that the woman Jesus meets is a complete outsider. Not long before this, Jesus had had another one-on-one -on -one conversation with a different man, a man named Nicodemus, 
Um, we actually looked at that uh, two weeks ago. You can go back and have a look at uh, YouTube if you missed it. Now, Nicodemus, he was one of the elites. He was a leader of the Jewish people. He was educated. He was a teacher. He was male. He was respected. He was the ultimate insider. But here in this conversation, we meet someone who is almost, uh, who is the very opposite in almost every respect. For starters, she's a Samaritan. And Samaritans were, were the great enemies of the Jewish people. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were Jews. Though both Jews and Samaritans trace their lineage back to the same patriarchs, men like Jacob and Abraham, the Samaritans had intermarried with the other nations and allowed their worship to become corrupted. That's why the author points out at the end of verse 9, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now what's more, she's a woman. And such was the prejudice of the day that men would not publicly associate with women. Here's what one Jewish teacher had written. One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife, because of the gossip of men. Now even Jesus' own disciples were surprised when they returned and they found him speaking with a woman. Verse 27 shows us that, just beyond our Bible reading from before. And then in addition to these two things, she's someone who had been socially outcast even among her own people. Did you catch when we read it before that this conversation took place at about noon? It's there in verse 6. Usually... Women would go to a well to draw water for their household at the start or the end of the day when things were a little bit cooler. They'd go in groups and the whole thing was a social experience. But not this woman. She comes in the midday heat and she comes alone. Later we'll find out about her troubled history with men, the shame of which was probably what caused her to come alone. So that's the person Jesus turns to in verse 7 and asks for a drink. In breach of social taboos, he takes the initiative with her. And indeed, by the end of the conversation, she of all people will become the first person to whom he has revealed that he is God's long-awaited Messiah. And the point the author's making by putting side by side these two one-to-one conversations with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman is this. It doesn't matter who you are, you need Jesus. If the respected, educated Jewish insider did, and the outsider Samaritan woman did, well, you need him too. All of us need him, even if, like the Samaritan woman here, we don't at first think we do. Perhaps you're in that boat today. So let's now dive into the conversation. What is it that Jesus actually says that causes her and also prompts us to see the need for him. Well, our conversation centres around three main longings or thirsts. Physical thirst, relational thirst and spiritual thirst. So firstly, physical thirst. Uh, The woman, she's arrived at the well, she sees Jesus sitting there next to it. He's tired and he's parched from his long journey in the hot Middle Eastern sun. He's asked her for a drink and we never actually find out if that drink ever comes. Instead, Jesus takes the opportunity to tell her about the living water that he can give. He says to her in the start, uh, in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, 
and he would have given you living water. The woman came to the well to satisfy her physical thirst. And what Jesus offers her is the satisfaction of a far deeper thirst, a far greater replenishment. For what Jesus offers here when he speaks of living water is nothing less than the gift of connection to God by his Holy Spirit that then leads to eternal life. This becomes clear in verse 14 when he says that the water he gives will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, the Bible is very clear from start to finish that God is all about giving full and satisfying life. God created all life and he sustains all life. He really is like a fresh, constantly flowing stream with lush forests on either side, abundant with wildlife coming to the banks to to drink from the stream. He enables flourishing for all who stay connected to him. But when we cut ourselves off from him, death becomes our inevitable destiny. We're like the bunch of flowers cut at the stem. We may look alive, But having been cut off from the source of life, death becomes our only possible future. And so when Jesus speaks of eternal life here, he's not just talking about life that goes on forever. You die and you go to heaven. No, he's speaking about quality of life, the best kind of life, because now you are connected with God, the life giver. It's a life where all your needs and longings are satisfied. Imperfectly in this broken world now, it's true. But in the age to come, fully and completely will these longings be satisfied. Now the Samaritan woman, when she hears Jesus' offer, at first she's sceptical. What could this weary traveller who doesn't even have a bucket offer her? And she mocks him with her question in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He may talk big, she's thinking, but quite clearly he's not greater than Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of her people who had built this well that they stood at. But even when she finally asks him in verse 15 to give her some of the living water, still she shows that she has utterly misunderstood what's on offer here. For starters, she's tangled up in the metaphor. She's still thinking on an entirely natural plane of a person's daily need for H2O, you know, eight cups of water or whatever it might be. Which perhaps is fair enough, given that living water was also just a common way of referring to fresh running water in a stream or a spring. But more importantly, she's, she's troubled here because she is simply blind to her own need. She's got no conception that she is a cut flower, disconnected from God, heading for eternal death. She thinks her need is simply to have her physical thirst met, for her body to be replenished with water. Friends, don't be under any illusions about your true need. We all fill our lives with so many different things that we hope will satisfy our desires or just enable us to cope. But even though many of these things can be good, none of them offer the ultimate satisfaction of connection with our maker and our sustainer, with the true source of life. 
And it's this blindness to her own need that then causes Jesus to take the conversation on what at first seems like a bit of an abrupt turn. She's just asked in verse 15 for him to, to give her the living water so she doesn't have to keep coming back to the well. And then in reply, he asks her to go, call your husband and come back. An unexpected turn to say the least. What Jesus is aiming to do here is bring her bring to her awareness her deeper needs by showing her her relational thirst. That's the second longing the conversation centres on. He's attempting to show her that if she only thinks her needs are about access to water, well, she's totally misunderstood the dimensions of her need. And what we ultimately see here is that he knows each one of us. He gets each one of us. And so it is safe for us to come to him and find refuge in him. Now, the woman replies to Jesus evasively, but not untruthfully. Verse 17, she says, I have no husband. And then Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. What Jesus does here is gently reveal his knowledge of her painful past. Now, we're not told how it's come about that she's had five husbands and now a de facto, but we can be pretty sure, knowing the culture of the day, that she's been the victim of the whims of these men and didn't have much agency in how her marriage has ended. Nevertheless, though, it's also clear that she has been longing for the satisfaction that comes from being known and loved by another. Jesus knows what's in her heart and he exposes it for the sake of her healing. Notice how careful and gentle Jesus is with what he says here. No doubt she's been shamed and rebuked often enough in the past and feared that the same thing might happen again here, but it never comes from Jesus. He's at pains to commend her that, formally at least, she has spoken truthfully. You are right, he says, and then what you have just said is quite true. And if you were to read on, you'll see that straight after the conversation, she runs off thrilled. And she says, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. And that's what she tells the people of the town. Now, the only way that can be a thrilling thought is if the person who knows everything you ever did is for you. If it's your enemy or someone you can't trust who knows everything about you, well, that's a scary thought. But there are few things more thrilling than to have someone who is for you totally get you, totally understand you. See, it's from this moment that the Samaritan woman begins to understand that in Jesus, she has finally met the man of her dreams, the man of her longings. Finally, he is a man who knew her and didn't want to abuse her. And do you know, Jesus knows you like he knew this woman as well. He knows your flaws and your failings. He knows your skeletons and your private sins. And yet he loves you. Indeed, he has gone to the cross so that you can be utterly cleansed of those very things, all your guilt and shame removed, so that you can receive that living water if you would ask for it. 
So don't allow the fact that there are dark aspects of your character and your past to keep you from coming to him. As you come to him, you come to the only one who fully knows you and fully gets you. The third and final longing uh, the conversation centres around is spiritual thirst. The question of what true worship looks like. The topic of conversation turns abruptly again. The woman recognises that Jesus is a man of special insight. I can see you're a prophet, she says. And so she asks him about perhaps the biggest point of religious contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. Where are we meant to worship? Now, in part, this question may be a diversion from her personal life, um, the pains of that being brought up. But given what we've seen about her growing positivity towards Jesus, it's probably actually more than that. Knowing that he is some kind of man of God who is for her, her mind, her heart and her mind no doubt are racing. And this question, I think, is an attempt to start taking a little bit more seriously the spiritual need that's now been revealed to her, this deeper need. And for us, Jesus' answer here poses the challenge, what do you worship? All of us have something or or someone that we are devoted to that trumps everything else. So is it the one who by rights is deserving of our worship, the creator God of all the world? Now to understand both her question and Jesus' answer, we've first got to know a little bit more about the background between Jews and Samaritans. I said before that the Samaritans were the great enemy of the Jews in part because Jews thought their worship had been corrupted. The Samaritans, you see, had constructed an alternative temple to the one in Jerusalem in about the year 400 BC. They only accepted the authority of the first five books of the Bible. And so they didn't acknowledge the fact that God had instructed David and Solomon to build a temple at Jerusalem. And they found various reasons in the first five books of the Bible to choose Mount Gerizim as the temple site. The debate had raged for centuries and it was no small thing. Either God had set his presence in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. And if a person wanted to come to him and truly worship him, well, this is a question that you'd want to get right. Except that now, with the coming of Jesus... This question is irrelevant. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, Jesus says in verse 21. Where you worship no longer matters. It's who you worship that matters. Because of who God is, because God is spirit, those who worship him must worship in the spirit and in truth, Jesus says in verse 24. Now, in effect, that's just another way of speaking about the connection with God that the living water was a picture of before. That's what worship is. Whole of life, engagement with God and connection to him. So worshipping in the spirit and drinking the living water, they're descriptions of the same thing. For it's by his Holy Spirit that God connects himself to us and revitalizes us to eternal life. And the reason this kind of worship is done in truth is because God is the one who tells us how to worship him. Indeed, it's Jesus himself, the one who elsewhere is called the truth, who shows us what this life of worship looks like. 
It's a life of glad obedience to God, of satisfaction in Him, and that seeks to give Him the honour and glory that's rightly His as the perfect and loving creator and sustainer of the world. Now, to be clear, such worship is not what earns us eternal life. Remember, it's a gift from God and you don't earn gifts. But it is meant to be the natural response of someone who has been given that gift. Now, as a Samaritan woman hears this, I think she is filled with hope. It perhaps sounds too good to be true that anyone could be a worshipper like this. The old boundaries have now been wiped away. She wants confirmation and she suggests in verse 25 that the coming Messiah will be the one who brings it. And then when Jesus discloses, I am he, I am this Messiah, and the disciples return, well, that's, that's enough for her. That's the trigger that she needs to throw off her shame and head into the town for her first act of worship, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? But what about you? Who, what, what is it or who is it that you worship? Come back to that question again. Because if it's anything other than the one true God, it will ultimately let you down. If it's the acclaim of others, if it's leaving a legacy, if it's raising a family, if things like that are what you ultimately devote your life to, know that in the end, these things will not satisfy We need to stop trying to fill that God-shaped hole with all sorts of other things. As I conclude then, I just want you to take a step back and consider why it is that you are listening to this talk right now. Perhaps a friend shared the link with you. Or perhaps you just stumbled across it yourself. Whatever it is, one thing we can say for certain is that in God's plans, it's no accident that you are listening to this right now. What you've just heard is precisely what God wants you to hear. As Jesus rested by the well that day, the woman and the woman came uh, to draw water, he could have just left her to herself, left her to cope uh, with this life of unfulfilled longings, of finding strategies um, just to get through the day. But he didn't. This was no accident that they were there together. This was a divine appointment. In love, he came and sought her, the complete outsider, and he drew her in. Finally, she had caught a taste of what true life could be like, a glimpse of glorious eternity in the presence of God, the God who gives life to the full. As she ran off to tell the people of the town, full of hope and joy, She was experiencing the first gulps of that living water fresh in her belly that would satisfy her forever. And likewise, it's no accident that you have heard this today. Jesus today has come to you and he invites you to drink. Turn to him and trust him. Ask him to give you this living water and know the joy of connection to the God who gives life. If you'd like to do that now, I'm going to say a prayer in a moment that you can repeat yourself to make your own. If you're not ready yet to pray this prayer and you've still got questions, I urge you not to rest until you have found the answers. There are good answers. Uh, Get in touch with us 
at Anglican Churches Springwood. Uh, we've got people who would love to help you through these questions, or you could simply ask the person who sent you this link. Well, let me lead us in prayer to God, one that you can repeat yourself, asking him to give you this living water. You might like to bow your head in prayer. Loving Father in heaven, thank you that you sent your son Jesus into this world to give those who ask the gift of living water. You alone are the one who satisfies our deepest need. You alone are the one who brings life. Sorry that I have tried to live without you and tried to satisfy my needs in other places. Please forgive me. And please give me today your living water. May I live my life now connected to you in true worship. And may I look forward to life with you forever. Amen.